This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, although this is not Rick Zamperin. Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamperin this week. Let me tell you what's coming up on the podcast today. We're talking about kids' mental health through COVID and a doctor saying it's time to change some stuff to deal with that. They've been hurt. We got to do some stuff to help. We'll explain what that is. We're going to tell you who the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year is, the top athlete from Hamilton and Burlington. That was announced we're going to be chatting about 2-22-22, which is what Tuesday is. Yes, 2-22-22 on a Tuesday. How perfect. We are chatting about the Winter Olympics. What is the legacy of the Winter Olympics? That will be something to consider because it's been an interesting Winter Olympics. What about EQAO tests? Should they be back? Big debate about EQAO tests, which are returning, whether they have value or don't have value. And the Emergencies Act. It has been invoked. Well, it was invoked. Now it's been officially approved. Where do we go from here? Where does the government go from here? All that coming up. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. How do we balance protecting our physical health at the same time protecting our mental health? I mean, it seems like sometimes it's an impossible dilemma. And if it's not impossible, it's really difficult. And as I say, it's been highlighted during the pandemic because there are those who would say that perhaps by protecting our children, we have not been protecting our children. We may have been harming our children by protecting our children. It's a, it's a, it's a convoluted situation. Dr. Dennis DeValentino is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. He is also the co-founder of Let Kids Be Kids, which is an advocacy organization for children's mental health. He joins us now. Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I just think this is such an important and timely subject, so I really appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Well, and I do appreciate you being here. Let's start with your proposal, as it were. I don't know if it's a proposal is the right word, but you want mask mandates for kids dropped now, school closures ended, extracurriculars restarted, all that kind of stuff, correct? Absolutely correct. Why? So, well, you, I think you did a really good introduction and probably nailed, hit the nail on the head, excuse me, um, with our position, which is we're two years in now. And, you know, COVID restrictions that I think were reasonable to intuitively think may help in the beginning have just not proven that they're doing so. And so in our attempt to protect our children, we're harming our children. But importantly, we think it's the evidence that's showing us this now, and we're past opinion. And so if we look at the COVID restrictions, these are some fairly heavy-handed restrictions. They're probably stopgap measures, not intended to be permanent and probably not for a two-year period, particularly for these young children, so critical for development. And so we think that all of the the, uh, COVID restrictions are producing more harm than good in our children and really not producing a benefit to society. But the one that we are particularly focused on right now is masks, because I think there's an incorrect thinking that these are completely benign and we just don't feel that way. Why? What, what What is it about masks in particular as far as, and I assume you're referring to children's mental or emotional health. What's the connection? Yeah, exactly right. So we're seeing, and we really did have data previously, but we're seeing just a bunch of data coming out right now suggesting that masks will interfere with cognitive development and social emotional development in particular. This is the importance of facial expression in, in putting 
what the children are learning and hearing in context. So we know that we use people's facial expressions to guide us in terms of the encounter. Now, how hard would it be if you're a child who just doesn't have that experience yet, and now you're trying to learn and interact using eyes only? It really is a big issue. It really does have negative impacts, particularly on learning. And so I think that we have to stop being reassured by the sight of a child in a mask and start looking for the data as to whether or not this child wearing a mask is producing a benefit to the kid or to society. What I'm about to say, what I've just picked up from what you said there, and, and this may be the craziest thing you've heard, but... You know, we hear when people are autistic that one of the things they have a difficult time doing is reading social cues. And obviously there are challenges when you can't do that. This almost sounds like we are falsely creating a sense where you can't read social cues and creating some of those same problems. That, that's right. And, and I am. And I'm not saying we're making people autistic. I don't mean that, but it's like a similar challenge. Yeah, no, no. And I think the point very well taken and I actually think it's a really good one. And this is by no means my area of expertise, but we do have a great pediatric psychiatrist, Dr. Krista Boylan, who's part of our Let Kids Be Kids team. And we've talked a lot about this. And so just at a high level, you know, autism would be a deficiency in some sense in social and emotional interaction. And so, yeah, I think that it is reasonable to draw an analogy like you've done and to say, you know, is that the type of scenario that we are creating for our children? You know, put, you know, in, in, implementing the deficiency. Here's the, here's the challenge, and it's a real difficult challenge. If these mandates were to be lifted, if what you are saying was to be done, and if even a single child got COVID and died, and heaven forbid, but if that happened, wouldn't those who are in government or those who are in decision-making positions who said, let's take the mass away, let's get back to extracurriculars, wouldn't they be just eviscerated in the public square for having not protected our children? I mean, this, that's exactly right. But this is what concerns us about this, is that two years into COVID, it's time to pivot from a fear-based approach and this fear-based approach seems to be associated with thinking that baseline risk is zero. That is not the case. And so we have to recognize it's very important with these COVID measures. If the COVID measures save one person from COVID and cost us two people from something else, they should be eviscerated for that. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I mean, again, it's really tricky because COVID, um, we have markers that we can clearly see. You can take a test and you can say that person has COVID much harder. I would guess to do that with mental health or emotional health. That's the challenge. And, and really, you know, if you have a really, really negative COVID outcome and you have a hospitalization and or a death, that's obviously the most extreme thing. And that's the thing that we're worried about the most in all patients, but particularly our children. But to think that we can eliminate pediatric infectious disease deaths entirely, it's almost absurd, Scott. And really the issue is, I don't think that the pediatric infectious death rate has gone up during COVID. There's a small number of children, typically immunocompromised or vulnerable, and, and, and that is a very unfortunate situation where there's deaths from these infectious diseases 
in this group of people every year. And I think in the last two years, some of those negative outcomes have been due to COVID, whereas they would have been due to something else. We only have a few seconds left, but the other real difficult part here is even if you can make your case to government people or again, decision makers, uh, just go online, listen to the conversation. There are still lots of parents screaming at the government saying, don't lift the mandates. Our kids are unsafe. So you're not just, you're battling with people pulling from every different side on this. The exact challenge is, is we need to restore the science and the evidence because science is really not meant to be so subject to public opinion and governed by politics. It just wow. won't work. Dr. Dennis DeValentino, Assistant Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University, co-founder of Let Kids Be Kids, which is letkidsbekids.ca if you want to look it up. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks a lot for your time, Scott. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today, February the 22nd, 2022, it's 22 And of course, all on a Tuesday. Yeah, it is, uh, it is number day here on the show and around the world, which gets our attention. And, you know, it's a curious thing why that does. Uh, Dr. Barry Markovsky is a distinguished professor emeritus of sociology at the University of South Carolina. He joins us now. Dr. Markovsky, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. You wrote a really interesting piece about this. You were on your game. You were, you caught this way ahead of the rest of us because you wrote a piece for the conversation about this idea. Why is it that we are either fascinated in some cases by number matching and things like this, or if nothing else, intrigued? It gets our attention. Why? Well, there's something very primitive going on here. Uh, I think with perception, uh, we notice patterns, and when the date has a, rep- a repeated pattern, like all ones or all twos, uh, it's really impossible not to notice it. What we may forget on a day like today is that there are lots of other days that have these repeating patterns. Sure. Uh, none of them are especially meaningful, I don't think, but uh, <laughs> they're out there. And it was really, really fun to start thinking about this. Uh, I even noticed that, uh, had I been born 30 days sooner, my, my birthday would have been three, four, five, six. Which would have, you know, you would have made shirts and made a million dollars doing that. I mean, <laughs> it's, but it is like we do, um, whether it's numbers or whether it's, uh, what do you call it when the words read the same forward and backward? I can't remember the name of that one right now. It's too uh, palindromes. Thank you. Um, but, but we do, we find these things interesting and, you know, while it is cool to look at, I guess I'm, I'm, again, I'm sort of puzzled as to why, do you have any thought on why the symmetry seems to intrigue us so much? Well, we are wired as, as biological organisms to find patterns, uh, in all kinds of places, for survival more than anything else. Uh, you know, if we were unable to, in primitive times, notice, uh, that as the sun moved around the horizon, as the weeks progressed, uh, we should plant at certain times or harvest at certain times, uh, failing to notice that decreases our chances of surviving mm. or realizing that a rustle in the bushes could be a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> uh, to use a popular example, that making that connection, you know, can save, can save our lives and let us pass our genes on to the next generation. So there is a kind of, um, 
deeper meaning to all this. And it's, it's not the numbers themselves, of course. It's really about how our brains operate. But I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a neuroscientist. I, I'm also interested in how these numerical oddities get promoted, uh, through cultures, through groups. And that's a whole other, a whole other interesting dimension of this, I think. But there is a, almost a physiological response in some cases. I don't know if you were ever a, a viewer of the, the show, The Office, but there was a scene in The Office where they were all sitting in a room waiting for a meeting and it was a computer screen and it had in the old days, the old Microsoft Office logo that would bounce around and they all watched. <laughs> and when it hit perfectly in the corner, instead of the ba-boom, when it was, there was like a cheer and you felt it. You understood there's something about the, and now that's not numbers, but it's again, a symmetry or a, a something that looks just perfect that makes us actually feel something. Yeah. I am a fan of the office and, and uh, that, that was a memorable moment in the, in the series. Uh, it, it's true. Uh, when, when things fit just right, uh, it kind of gives us a sense of control over the, over the chaos of the universe, I think. Uh, a, a sense of knowing something. Uh, so, you know, we, we are always kind of vigilant for, for coincidences and, uh, and there are many out there and we tend to attribute much more meaning to them than they deserve. I think they're fun, but when you start uh, orienting your life around them, that could become a problem. And that's, you know, okay. I'm glad you brought that up. Because you know what, you and I are talking about this as a fun thing today, 2-22-22 on a Tuesday. And you know that every single person listening right now has gone to their calendar to look and check or, to, or will mention it today, but because they may not have noticed it. But there are people who really take this stuff very, very seriously, who follow numerology and, and say there's way more depth in this than simply just a, a, an aesthetic to it. Right. And most of the article that that you referred to in, in the conversation really is talking about numerology, uh, and, and some of the ways it, it's been used and misused. Again, numerology can be kind of a fun thing, like reading your horoscope. But if you start guiding your life by your destiny number, uh, or, or other numerological, uh, calculations, uh, you're making a mistake. There, there really is, um, no basis to this. It's just a kind of made up fun thing. But, uh, other aspects of numerology get really kind of interesting and a little bit spooky if you don't understand the statistics behind them. Uh, and I, I, some of those examples would be way too complicated to talk about here, but maybe the most famous, um, was the, uh, the set of coincidences surrounding the assassinations of President Presidents Kennedy and, and Lincoln, things like uh, their assassins having the same number of letters in their names, uh, the um, the year that they were elected, both ended with a sixty. The, the the year that Kennedy and Lincoln were elected, the day of the week that they were both assassinated was uh, six, uh, the Friday of the respective weeks, and there's a long list of those kinds of coincidences. But what People, and it gives you an eerie feeling when you read them. That it gives me an eerie feeling, even though I know why this happens. Uh, and the way it works, and, and of course, in this case, is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of numerical coincidences—literally coincidences—most of which 
aren't interesting at all. But if you're going to filter through all of those and come up with 15 or 20, such as they were elected in 1860 and 1960, uh, and only look at those, that looks a lot spookier and uh, a lot more fun. And I remember being very impressed with that when I was uh, about 10 years old and a coin collector. Yeah, no, I've heard that one before and I'm glad you, and I would encourage people to go look at this. It's at the conversation. That's the name of the website, the conversation. Uh, the headline is happy Tuesday, T W O S D A Y. Why numbers like two twenty two twenty two have been too fascinating for over 2000 years. Uh, it is look, it, it is a fun thing to contemplate. I, I would agree with you that if you dive too far into this and follow it too closely, it, it, you may be taking it a little too, pardon me, seriously, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, it, it is a great read. And, and I'm, I'm glad you were on top of this ahead of time so we could talk about it today. Dr. Barry Markowski, thanks so much for this. Thank you. It's been fun. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Twitter poll question. Do you agree with federal politicians vote to authorize the government's use of the Emergencies Act? That is, I agree. It's an overreach or I'm still undecided. Lots of people jumping in on that one on Twitter. Have your say there as well. While we're talking about that, I want to bring in Yaroslav Baran, who is the Managing Principal of Ottawa and Federal Ernstcliff Strategy. He joins us now. Thank you so much for this today. Appreciate your time. Always good to be here. So in the debate, we heard one of the main reasons why the Emergencies Act not only was invoked, but why it's continuing, according to the vote in the House of Commons yesterday, was that we are still in, the blockade may have been cleared out, but we are still in a state of emergency. Is that a reasonable position for the government and for those who voted for it to take? Look, uh, from my point of view, it's very difficult to make that conclusion. Um, let's, let's keep in mind the enormity of what was done uh, by the government and by parliament. I mean, we're used to hearing terms like state of emergency. BC declares state of emergency after floods. Newfoundland declares state of emergency after hurricane. But this thing, this federal tool has never been used before. This is a successor of the War Measures Act that was used in 1970 to put soldiers on our streets during a terrorist crisis. We didn't use it after 9-11. We didn't use it after a gunman stormed the parliament building um, and started spraying bullets all over the place. So this is a really, really rare tool. And it's hard to justify precisely because the biggest crisis was on the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. It was blocking millions and millions of dollars of trade. And the province of Ontario cleared that bridge without using the tools of the Federal Emergencies Act. So if we didn't need it to clear the biggest crisis, it's hard to justify why this thing is still kicking around. Well, my concern with this, and, and, you know, as I listen to this, I'm trying to be measured on this one, but I do have a concern about it. And this is, okay, so as you say, the Ambassador Bridge is cleared, the trucks in front of Parliament Hill are now gone. But if you're going to say, well, there's a risk that they could resume, they could come back, they could reassemble, could that not be said five months from now, a year from now, two years from now, that they could reassemble? So that, that risk always exists that somebody could decide to stage a protest this this then could be something that we say well we have to keep this in play because they could always come back 100 percent, and that's what people like the civil liberties association are starting to flag they're saying usually when governments declare themselves more power 
it's okay. You, you sort of cross across the threshold the first time when it's novel and kind of scary and people wonder about it, but then it, but then it becomes normalized and it's hard to get rid of. Right. And to your point that the, the problem wasn't so much that authorities lacked the appropriate powers to deal with this. We can, you know, we can do a whole postmortem on what went wrong and a lot did go wrong. Police in Ottawa should never have let the trucks get as far as they did. They should have put up bollards. They should have, uh, they should have ensured they couldn't get to downtown, etc. But these are these are municipal policing matters, for heaven's sakes. These are normal day-to-day routine things, decisions that police forces make every single day. These are not the kinds of things that require uh, like the ultimate sledgehammer uh, that the federal government can invoke. It's actually like it's I think it's an understatement to call this overreach. Uh, one of the MPs, I can't remember who, called it um, swatting, you know, swatting a mosquito with a sledgehammer. That's exactly what this is. Um, so it's it's it, this is a this is a bit of a dark day. Uh, could I be? Um, let me ask you how cynical you are. Uh, if this protest had happened in front of the Capitol in Edmonton, as opposed to in Ottawa, where the federal politicians live and work, would we would the Emergencies Act have come into play? You know, probably not. Uh, but mind you. <laughs> Well, but then again, you know what? We had major protests in Toronto for the G7. I remember those? Yes. Um, but we didn't even pull out this tool then. Uh, and those were bigger. Those are more violent. Those were angrier. Those are more disruptive than, than what we saw in Ottawa. So, I mean, so what's the what difference? makes Ottawa so special? If, if we didn't even do it in, in Toronto, our, you know, Canada's metropolis, then uh, again, it's hard to justify here. But you mentioned cynicism. What? What makes me cynical is from what I've seen, you know, weighing the powers that did exist but weren't used and then pulling out the sledgehammer, especially after the biggest crisis was already over, the, you know, the Coots, Alberta and the, and the Windsor bridges. To me, the only thing I can conclude was that this was really invoked primarily as a communications tool, as a public relations exercise uh, for the prime minister to put in the window to send a signal, okay, uh, somebody's in charge, we're, we're, we're doing something here. And dear Lord, if we're pulling out emergency powers, unprecedented, never used emergency powers as a PR exercise, then wow, this government has really lost its way. Well, the, the other thing that, again, if we're going to talk about cynical, and, and I, you know, I think we can't help but be there, on either side of the political aisle, you're going to be cynical about some of this stuff. Um, Parliament voted to okay this, to endorse this yesterday in a vote last night, and then adjourned for a week. If this was the most, if this was the greatest threat to our safety and our security ever, at least since '88, when it was last used as the War Measures Act, um, surely you'd be sitting through this whole time to make sure that you were in charge. No. Yes. Well. Um, I take your point. I think the most important thing is that they immediately strike this special oversight committee that comes along with these emergency powers. They are the ones who are actually going to be uh, watchdogging everything that the cabinet does with these powers. So it's probably more important that they strike that committee rather than, you know, all of parliament. Because when all of parliament sits, they do their, you know, all kinds of committees, they debate routine bills, whatever. So that oversight committee is critical. But uh, one really bizarre element, speaking, speaking of, of what's happening in the house and, and, and hijinks there, one really bizarre episode yesterday was when the government started a rumor through its MPs that last night's vote 
was going to be a confidence vote. They didn't declare it publicly to be a confidence vote. The government whip did not have a press conference and say, this is a vote of confidence, which is how you do these things. They started a rumor via backbench MPs to journalists to get the word out, frankly, to spook the NDP into voting with the government. I've never seen that done before. And look, I've worked as chief of staff to the government house leader in the past, in previous governments. I know how these things are done. If, if you're going to be... Uh, if you're going to be using the confidence tool, saying this is so important that vote against this bill is tantamount to a defeat of the government, then you are transparent about it. You are open about it. You don't do this through rumors and have mm. the press gallery guessing all day long. Is this a confidence vote? Is it not a confidence vote? What are the consequences if it fails, etc.? The weirdest, weirdest thing. And it was, again, more dirty hijinks. It is. Um, it, it, look, this is we're going to be debating this one for a long, long, long time because this is uh, this is the hammer of Thor, as I've described it, being brought down. And some will agree and think it's great, and some will say this is the worst thing ever. I don't know if there's anybody in the middle, but um, hmm. uh, Yaroslav Baran, I uh, really appreciate the time, as always, today. Thank you for doing this. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have talked about a number of things over the past couple of years, over and over and over again. One of them is our concern for the education system and what's going to happen to kids. The other, of course, is that we tend to disagree on an awful lot of things about what we've been doing over the course of the pandemic. Not all of us agree on everything. Well, combine the two. Combine those disagreements and combine education and um well you get what we've had an awful lot of is a lot of talk about what we're doing right or wrong I want to bring in paul bennett he is the director of the schoolhouse institute of schoolhouse consulting one of canada's top educational experts and paul we're now in a debate slash discussion slash argument about whether eqao eqao tests should be coming back some say absolutely some say not a chance kids don't need this what do you think I'm a big supporter of restoring EQAO tests. I think after two years without um, a semblance of a consistent education and evidence accumulating of learning loss, that with a quicker we restore um, more normal student evaluations, the better. That includes standardized testing across the province and um, formal examinations and other means of assessment. I Listen very carefully to the response of the Green Party to the announcement that um, EQAO testing was going to resume uh, next year on a full-time basis, and I was resistant to that position. And I essentially said that it would be short-sighted not to restore the EQAO tests in 2022-23. See, the argument against it, I suppose, is that a lot of people say this is unfair to students who have been under a lot of pressure already, and now they have just something else to try and catch up on and something else to deal with. What do you say to that? I believe the students are faring a lot better than the educators. (laughs) A lot of the pushback comes from educators who have longstanding opposition to any form of every student assessment. But I have to say to you that we have to think first of the students And we do need to have baseline data upon which to plan for learning recovery. Um, Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, We've lost two years of schooling uh, in Ontario. It amounts to 27 weeks of schooling that's either been suspended completely or replaced by 
alternatives that are online and not likely effective. We've got new research emerging about how far students have fallen off track and uh, what the results of that are that we are in a position where we're going to have to start assessing students again just to see how far off they are from what was projected in terms of where they should be in their educational journeys. Do you think that's one of the concerns? Do you think the concern is that when they do the EQAO test, the scores come back and they are so far behind that it validates the concerns that students have fallen off? And then what do we do? I believe you're quite right. That is one of the factors in the resistance. And uh, it's been deferred and deferred. Uh, Keep in mind that in the United States, in most educational jurisdictions, they did not suspend uh, testing on an every student basis. They have consistent data across time. And the problem that we've created is by suspending these assessments, we're going to inevitably um, introduce the comparison of before and after. And it's not going to be pretty. Um, let's, let's just take a very specific example of what we know now. We know now from a study for the Royal Society of Canada called COVID and student learning that, uh, there is no data that has been collected over the last two years anywhere in Ontario on how students are doing. In fact, the uh, People for Education released a report in January, which had uh, a summary of across the country, all 10 provinces and three territories. And under uh, data collection, it was no data available. We've got a data uh, crisis. We don't have enough Morning, data Dan, can you hear me? which to plan for student recovery. And we should be moving from uh, learning loss to recovery and We're going to have to um, make sure that when those tests are reintroduced, that uh, they're valid assessments of where students are in relation to where they need to be. Okay, so let's take the best case scenario, which is kids have have handled this better than we expect, and the results are close to what they were before. That would be the ideal. But what if it's the opposite? What do we do if we do an EQAO test and we find out that they are way, way, way behind where they should have been? What do we do with that then? Well, we need two or three types of tests, EQAO being one of them. That's your baseline data on a longitudinal basis upon which you can make comparisons over time. And we have data that's consistent from 1996 to the present across Ontario. So, And by the way, it's regarded around the world as one of the best and most reliable systems of assessment. So um, this introspection in Ontario is being self-critical. Uh, I think what we also need are um, seasonal assessments uh, to measure where kids are at the end of a year and then at the beginning of the year. And I want to point out that um, Scott um, uh, uh, Scott Davies and uh, Janice uh, Aruni, uh, Scott Davies from OISE and Janice Aruni from the University of Waterloo, They put out a paper which indicated just how far we have to go in order to close the gap in getting the data we need to do the assessments so we can actually address learning loss and the achievement gap between various groups of students. So we've got two things we need to be concerned about, and it is not um, it is not a viable or a responsible course of action to suspend every student assessment. 
Um, I'll give you three things that assessment is used for. They, some people say it's a waste of time. Well, that's because they haven't got a fuller view of the potential of student testing. One, it's a valid um, way of establishing benchmarks to evaluate the quality of education in the system. Everyone knows that. Secondly, it's valuable at the school level to assess how students are doing in each school in relation to the curriculum that's being taught. So we have some basis for evaluating what's going on at the school level. And a third area is the value it has for educators in assessing specifically what parts of the curriculum are being taught well and what parts of the curriculum are not being taught well. Or in this case, I believe the educators need to know what students are missing. Yeah. As a yeah. result of two years of suspended education. It is, uh, it is a tough one. It is, a, is a fight going on right now, but, uh, there you go. There's, a, there's one point of view, certainly, and a very educated one from, uh, Paul Bennett, director of Schoolhouse Institute. Thank you so much for this. As always, thanks for the time. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year is the best athlete from the Hamilton Burlington area, not just an amateur, not a necessarily a high school or someone. This is a, an award for literally the best athlete pro anywhere from this region. And over the last number of years, it has always been someone who has done exceptionally well on the world stage. Uh, Michelle Vesprini, who is the chair of the golden horseshoe athlete of the year committee joins us now, Michelle, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Scott. I am well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, we are thrilled to do this. So as I say, normally most years, and things are a little different this year, usually you would give several weeks ago or a month ago the three finalists and then name the winner. Things are a little different this year. So this year we're learning the two nominees, the two finalists and the winner at the same time. Let's go through the finalists first here. So the, the first finalist, for this this year was Darnell Nurse, Edmonton Oilers defenseman, member of the Nurse family. Everyone knows them. Why was <laughs> Darnell Nurse a finalist this year? Oh gosh, you know, firstly, what what a an incredible dynasty we have representing um, Hamilton in uh, in the Nurse family, the whole conglomerate of nurses, um, beautiful <laughs> people too. Um, yeah, so this year. Darnell, I mean, Darnell has been nipping at the heels and has been nominated in years previous. He, again, um, was nominated this year and, and became one of the, the top, uh, top three, uh, because mo- multiple things, uh, among top NHL defensemen in a number of statistical categories in the 2020, 21 regular season. One thing we have to always remind our viewers and our readers and our supporters is although the award is being handed out in the calendar year that precedes the actual award year we are recognizing accomplishments from the year prior so we're looking at you know the 2021 season and um so um for darnell for example uh he was second in goals of the nhl defenseman fourth in time on ice with an average of 25 minutes per game fifth in plus minus ratings um, and tied for 12th in in points while his 15 regular strength goals were most among all nhl um, defensemen so pretty awesome a lot of what was really impressive was just how much ice time 
this athlete plays for his team and how it compares to the entire NHL, um, you know, and continues to, as you know, lead the Oilers in time on ice again. Um, the other finalist, uh, a name that for a lot of people, it's a new name. He's been around for a long time, but he, it's a name because of what's been going on in the world of sports that a lot of people have been introduced to. Milan Borjan, who is the goalie for Canada's national soccer team. Yes. Uh, th- this is, a, as I say, a guy who many people around here would never have known about until several months ago. But boy, he's had a year. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, look at what he's doing in this year. 2022 for Canada, but um, he's the one that elevated Canada to first place in uh, the final stage of the CONCACAF's FIFA World Cup qualifying. He has played a crucial role and um, named CPL player of the match in in Canada's 2-1 FIFA World Cup um, qualifier, undefeated in nine matches for the men's national team, um, and of course, um, representing Hamilton as well. Like he's just, he is a head turner and um, such a fun athlete to watch and also an incredible leader. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, okay. So if those are the two finalists, and again, when we, when I introduce this uh, for people who don't know this, again, this is not an award just sort of as a local, when we hear local, we often think of something, you know, small. This is this, these are people who are, dominating in the best levels of sports so if they are the finalists michelle um, (laughs) who is the winner of the golden horseshoe athlete of the year this year so this year's recipient of the bill stirrup golden horseshoe athlete of the year is Mackenzie hughes wow again third time your name to us yes 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 he's done this before yeah third time winning this so he ties joanne millar then they're the only ones who have won this three times Yes, yes. And uh, both are natives of Hamilton and uh, he being from Dundas. And uh, yeah, we are we're familiar with him. He continues to take his game to the very next level. And he's playing he's playing on the same platform of um, the the golfers that we all talk about in the households now. Mackenzie had an incredible 2021 year. Uh, and again, I mean, you'll probably be writing something about him, um, and you already have by highlighting some of the ones that you believed were going to be up there in the in the running for this title. But um, incredible, like just incredible accomplishments and and rankings for uh, for Mackenzie this year, well, second place. Yeah, yeah. and especially you when you, no, especially Michelle, when you consider that I mean, he started on Sunday at the U.S. Open in the final group, and I mean, but yeah. for one of the worst luck situations ever. I mean, I, I can't think of the number of golfers who've had their balls stuck in a tree. People hit trees. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't happen, he might win the U.S. Open, which no is, kidding. you know, which is just a crazy thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and he did fabulous in the Olympics. We always like to talk about Olympic years and he represented Canada placing, you know, 50th. He, he was second place finish at the, um, the RSM classic and um, which moved him into the top 40 in world rankings and finished 11th and overall in the 2021 FedEx cup standings. He, he's not done, you know, and, and that's where, it's great. Our committee is amazing because we just hash. Nothing is taken for granted. No athlete is taken for granted. It gets heated. Um, the people that sit 
usually at a table this year, you, you know, in front of a computer screen on Zoom. Um, they come with such a great background of, of knowledge in sport, in like global sport, not just one sport. And so our conversations are great. And it was difficult to, to argue that McKenzie, although a third, uh, uh, you know, third time round, a three-peater. He uh, just he just had an incredible year. We got we got to run, but I, I think it'll be easier for you next year because I got to believe that next year's winner may have already performed and uh, and locked that up. When uh, when Sarah Nurse sets an all-time record for oh. points in a single Olympics, <laughs> someone's going to have to do something pretty good to 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 bump her off. I would say unbelievable. So the, the, the nurse, unbelievable. Uh, as you say, conglomerate will continue in all likelihood, or at least be in the in the finalists. Uh, Michelle Vesprini, always appreciate the time. Thanks for getting up so early. Thanks for doing this. A pleasure. Just wanted to make one comment, Scott. If we yeah. have any time, uh, a thank you to the CYO. We're still working with them. The announcement is in their program. They are doing a um, you know a dinner a. Uh, order and pick up dinner in place of their fundraiser but we really are hoping to get back to face to face and enjoy that dinner and and uh, camaraderie michelle vesprini thanks for doing this thanks scott you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml the question is now what is the legacy we always look at the legacy of an olympics and there are some olympics that have a very clear-cut legacy i mean i think you can look at vancouver here in Canada and say, I, I can pick out a number of things that I'd describe as the legacy of those games. What's the legacy of the 2022 Beijing Olympics? Bruce Kidd is Professor Emeritus with of Sport and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Um, a heck of an Olympian in his own right, a Lou Marsh Trophy winner once upon a time. He joins us now. Uh, Bruce, thank you for the time today. I appreciate it. Good morning, Scott. So what would you say? I mean, if someone said, Bruce, um, Number one thing, what is the legacy of the Beijing Olympics? What would you say? Well, it's complicated, as you said. First of all, we got through it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> That's good. They were successful games athletically. They weren't great Olympics, uh, but they were successful. And at a very difficult time for the world, we saw amazing, joyous performances and, uh, and an internationalism among the, the athletes particularly, that was heartwarming. So that was a plus. Uh, I would say that the, the sports facilities that the Chinese provided and their, their example of, of, of providing expanded uh, facilities and opportunities uh, for sport was also exemplary. I worry that with global warming, the possibility of the winter sports are... Uh, the, the, the possibility is, is, is waning and, and harder. And I worry that in our country, fewer and fewer of, of, of urban people have any connection to the ice and snow sports that, uh, that we saw in Beijing and, and uh, give those of us who love winter uh, such joy. The legacy yeah, I mean, on human rights is complicated. On the one yeah. hand, it it puts sport and human rights on the agenda in a way that we haven't seen for quite a while. And, and I think that was a positive. I think the, the Olympic movement, international sports ability to address human rights uh, is, uh, is not clear and, and both difficult and complicated. So I'd start with those points. And Bruce, you mentioned the word joy a number of times, and and certainly we saw some, you know, we saw joyful 
reactions from athletes when they won and often when they competed. But I, I, I got to tell you, like a, a number of people that I talked to, they sort of saw it the opposite. Viewers I'm talking about were like, the, these games just seem joyless. They don't seem like they have the same Olympic excitement the same fun even you know we saw the thing with the russian skaters being berated by their coaches it was sort of symbolic of some of the feeling it seemed it seemed seemed these games unlike vancouver where everybody felt great for two weeks everyone in canada felt fantastic it seems like these games missed some of that like it was something was missing i agree with that uh to a point uh and and most of the canadian journalists that i've read or listened to who were in Beijing said something like that. They didn't have the Olympic spirit. That's why I said they weren't Olympic games. They mm-hmm. didn't. Uh, they didn't connect people beyond the athletic venues. They didn't enable athletes, coaches, journalists. There were no spectators to to engage with each other in the way that the Olympics is famous for. But um, I guess I guess I was worried that that the games would be a, a total disaster and they they were athletically very successful uh the they did stop the spread of covid uh which was a huge worry with people from around the world coming together in a closed space and i think some of the athletic events uh and uh i begin by by the 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 important point that the olympics is a multiple narrative it's more than one story. It's more than 10 stories, all uh, rolling out in, in parallel, in contradiction, in convergent and divergent ways. And some of those stories were full of joy. Uh, I still remember the Japanese freestyle style skier attempting something that nobody had ever attempted before in competition and crashing just at the end. And she was swarmed by athletes from all the other countries who went up to congratulate her uh, with big smiles on their faces. So, I mean, there were those moments alongside uh, the, 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 the shots of broadcasters being told they couldn't step beyond this line uh, between uh, athletes only being able to talk to people who were uh, heavily masked up and even armed. So it was a contradiction. I'm glad we got through those games, Scott. I yeah. mean, at the beginning, uh, many people feared that they'd had to be canceled or many people feared that they would be uh, marred by the horrible intervention of the Chinese government because people spoke out. So um, I'm relieved. Are, is the Olympic is the Olympic movement Teflon? And I say this because, again, if we if we say that viewers and viewership numbers were down, if there was a a sense of the usual magic of the Olympics wasn't there, has the brand been damaged for next time or the next time? As long as we that magic reappears, everyone will jump right back on the horse and ride it again. I think say yes and no as well. I mean, I the IOC has always uh, deservedly come under criticism perhaps more so this time. I think uh, the reason a number of my friends didn't watch was was highly political. Either they have an aversion or a distrust or a fear of China, and they've lost respect for the IOC. On the other hand, I think the, 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 the demonstrations of 
of international togetherness that the athletes showed, several of the journalists reported, uh, showed that there is an appetite around the world for bringing people together in the traditional Olympic way, a peaceful competition. And I'm hopeful that while it may be limping, uh, it survived and can recover and, uh, and, 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 and go on to Paris uh, with uh, full mm. strength. Bruce, you only have a few seconds left, but do you think the IOC is self-reflective enough to start looking and saying, maybe it's time to not put the games in places where the regimes, you know, Sochi and Beijing, where, where we got to put it in some places where we don't have this, these political built-in problems? Scott, I know they're scared to death about that. They spend sleepless nights. They didn't have much of a choice in 2015 when they awarded the 2022 games to Beijing. As uh, the world gets more frightening, as more and more states uh, engage in uh, horrible uh, violations of human rights, it's harder and harder. Uh, maybe the solution is a permanent site, uh, but it would have to be in a very small and neutral country because there are few states in the world without these, uh, these horrible challenges. Yeah, it's a yeah. very complicated you, you, world. Yeah, you put it somewhere thinking it's safe, and then it turns out not to be. You're absolutely right. It's uh, uh, That is Bruce Kidd, Professor Emeritus, Sport and Public Policy, and uh, beyond that, a, a fantastic athlete in his own right. Bruce, we always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.